as they're making their way out. I'm going to remind us that we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10. And I'm going to come right out of the gate with verses 13 through 16 in Mark chapter 10. And the crowds were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. I don't know about you, but just every now and then, I can uh, easily grow discouraged with my lack of spiritual growth. And if you look at the, our spiritual growth over the years, you know, on some kind of what we call a learning curve, if your curve looks more like a flatline EKG, you know, which I know too well, you get discouraged. But I'm just going to tell you this morning that uh, not if, but when that happens to you and you want to be encouraged, just spend a little time with the disciples. You know, the cream of the crop, you know, the pick of the litter, the top shelf kinds of guys. I mean, that's why Jesus picked them, right? (laughs) Yeah, not hardly. Like I said, spend some time with them and you'll be encouraged. And I say that because I'm thinking about right here now, the passage that I just read. If you remember back a few weeks when we were in chapter 9 and the disciples were there together now, they'd spend quite a bit of time with Jesus. And what are they arguing about? They're arguing about, now remember, they're standing in the presence of Emmanuel. They're standing in the very presence of God. And what are they arguing about? Who of them is the greatest in the kingdom? Hello. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm feeling better already. Well, all that went on. And what did Jesus do? He responded by taking a child. And he sat the child on his lap. And as the chapter proceeds, we're told that Jesus uses the child as kind of a living illustration for the disciples. He uses them as an emblem of blessed innocence. He uses them as a symbol of spiritual frailty, but also as a symbol or an emblem of divine favor. And before now I go any further, um, what I want to do is attempt again. I failed miserably in the first service. I'll just tell you that right up front. So it may work out better here. That when we read the events in the scriptures, and not just I'm talking about the Gospel of Mark or even the New Testament, but all of the scriptures, whenever we are reading things there, our doctrine of inspiration says that what is penned, not only the what is penned, but the where things are placed in the scriptures was also inspired by God. Meaning the impact that this has is that when we read something as we're doing, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, it looks like things go from here to here to here to here in chronological session. But that, and that may be the case, but that's not necessarily the case. Something may happen here on a, if we're looking at a timeline and something may have happened back here But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writer chooses to take what happened back here and insert it here between this event and this event. 
because it is there and it will either underscore one or both of those two events or it will give insight to understanding those events properly. So all that is to say is that while we're reading this morning and we read about uh, the, the disciples' response to the children, their negative response to them, and then what we're going to read about is new material today, it seems like, boom, the incident with the children happened here, and then hours later or a day or two later, things happened here. But that's not necessarily the case. Okay? All right, that's just to be fair. All right, so Mark, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to record what he has recorded and when he has recorded it in relation to other things that he's already recorded, inserts the story about the children being brought to Jesus. And it seems that the reason it was inserted where it is is to keep it in close proximity to Jesus' teaching on divorce that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks to underscore how sensitive Jesus is to the least among us with respect to being trampled on or ignored or abused, and in, in the particular context as it relates to divorce. Well, that being said, all right, even allowing for these kinds of consideration of, of time and, and uh, contraction of history and all of that, I'm still a little dismayed that after Jesus has taught and demonstrated by using children on various occasions of how special they are to him, that the disciples still react the way they do when some children are brought to Jesus for a little attention. And the last thing that Jesus is recorded as saying here is, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And with that statement, Mark begins a brand new pericope with a perfect segue to the next lesson, often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. And I have on my shelf in my office some of uh, my children's earliest Bibles, actually their earliest Bible, which was called the Bible in Pictures for Little Eyes. And one of the stories in there is about the rich young ruler. And I can still see the cartoon figure, you know, that's, that's there for us. Well, that's the story we're going to be looking at this morning. And so we want to pick up this morning at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I've got to be honest with you that for years I would read through the scriptures. This particular short passage has always perplexed me. And so I would sit there and, and you know, I, the way I would read the passage is that here's this man who is seeking wise counsel from the one named Jesus. And he begins by acknowledging him as being indeed somebody quite special, in fact, so special that he addresses him as good teacher, which even for a rabbi that Jesus was considered to be a rabbi, that was not a common address in the day, even for someone as esteemed in the Jewish community as a rabbi. But this is no normal rabbi. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, indeed, he's the good teacher. And yet Jesus' reply is strange to me. Because what does Jesus reply? Verse 18, Jesus says to the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good 
except God alone. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm lost. I scratch my head thinking, why does Jesus seem to deny the truth of who he is? I mean, he is God. So why would he, at least in, again, my understanding of this passage, why would he correct the man for asking such a question? And has always been my fashion and continues to be my fashion today concerning reading through the scriptures. My goal is to read through it. This is in my casual daily time with the Lord. Read through the scriptures to get through the scriptures, not to understand every little jot and tittle that I read. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be through the Bible one time yet in 40 years. So I try not to get bogged down on something that at first blush or second blush or tenth blush kind of eludes me. And I just figure, well, at the right time, you know, the Lord will, or will uh, clarify things for me. So it was quite a few late, uh, years later that it dawned on me. Jesus wasn't denying anything about his perfection or about his goodness, nor was he trying to distance himself from people who were approaching him as God incarnate. Rather, he was ingeniously challenging the man who was coming to him to ask him the question of all questions and stripping away all pretense that the man was ready to accept what Jesus might tell him. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, Matthew gives us a little more piece of information that about this particular incident, that the man, first of all, was in fact a ruler. That just meant that he was somebody important in the uh, uh, either within the Jewish community or perhaps even within the civil community. He was some kind of a leader and a person to be esteemed. Well, that fact that he was a ruler, first of all, would have been obvious to Jesus and to everybody else by the company that he kept or that he came with, as well as his apparel. But we are told by Matthew that he was a ruler, just to make sure we understand that. Well, that he was well-to-do, meaning that he was well-off, would also have been equally obvious, and he comes asking Jesus the question, and Jesus knows that he's not going to like the answer. Not because he's God, just because he knows the heart of man. And John tells us in chapter 6 that because Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, he did not entrust himself to any man. Kind of just a, a natural, wise intuition. Well, the man's initial, it's not really a problem in, in fairness, but his initial challenge is that, that the man coming to Jesus is coming from a typical Jewish understanding of one's eternity, which is a merit-based salvation. And this is, I mean, when you think of the, the, the whole sacrificial system and, and all the commands in the Old Testament about obey me and live, disobey me and die, and if you do the sacrifices this way, great, but if you don't do them properly, then whoa, you know, and you've got to do other sacrifices to make up for the sacrifices that you botched and everything else. It was a very works-oriented kind of temporary putting off of God's judgment. But all of that which is granted, is still, in spite of the myriad of God's instruction in the Old Testament, regarding man's sinfulness. Like all of us like sheep in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord, in spite of that sacrificial system of works and, and seeming merit, 
still goes at great lengths throughout the Old Testament to tell man that you cannot live up to my righteousness, my goodness, my holiness. You cannot earn your salvation. And yet, despite the myriad of God's attempts to portray the impossibility of anyone earning eternity, Jewish understanding, as I said, was and still is for the most part a works-based system of salvation. So this man approaches Jesus with the understanding of salvation in his pocket. He's like, okay, I, I got this. I mean, I, I'm going to ask, you know, just maybe to be on the safe side or, or to get the kind of answer that, that I'm pretty confident I'm going to get anyway. And he comes to Jesus in an obsequious manner. That means in an, in an ingratiating, almost an over-the-top kind of, you know, oh, you're the greatest, you're the awesome, kind of buttering him up, so to speak. And he comes by kneeling, punctuated by the exceptional greeting, good teacher. And what does Jesus do? Jesus hammers him in a manner of speaking, asking rhetorically, well, why? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So let me rephrase this to get the gist of what I think is going on here. The inquisitive ruler sees the one who's called Messiah and all that that means. So he comes and he kneels before Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, I was just talking to Gary Willett Thursday uh, about this. Actually, he's the one that brought it up. He says, you know how you read in Scripture and, and suddenly something just kind of jumps out at you and you wonder, why? how did I never see that? I am telling you, that until this week's preparation for this message, as many times as I have read through the Bible and as many times as I've read this passage and even the children's version with my children and the familiarity with it and teaching Sunday school classes growing up, it wasn't until this week that for, it seems anyway like the first time that I saw that the rich young ruler came and kneeled before Jesus. And I'm like, how in the world did I never see that before? just for what that's worth. So this ruler in what may have been, may have been somewhat patronizing, asks what also has a component of very serious inquiry. And yet he is quite taken with his own station in life that he's confident that however the good teacher answers him, like I said, he's got this in his pocket. He's all over it. He knows he's going to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to just kind of flatter him with compliments for how good and upstanding and fine and meritorious this guy is. Someone as rich as he. I mean, somebody as educated as he. Somebody as important as he. And somebody who is as humble as he. I mean, kneeling before Jesus, which again was not commonly done to rabbis. He knows he knows he's destined for heaven, and he just wants to hear what he already knows. And you think about this is occurring in the midst of a crowd. And so the fact that there's other people around, other people looking on, only makes the situation that much more glorious for him. When Jesus answers him the way that he thinks he's going to answer him. His ingratiating demeanor and question may be utterly self-serving, and yet at the same time while hoping for some affirmation. It's kind of like the uh, story Barbara and I like to uh, excerpt for each other, and we know it 
so well when it's coming. But preacher finished his sermon up on a Sunday morning, and, and he did a particularly uh, good job, apparently, of uh, preaching the word to where he was getting compliments, which were highly unusual, as he was getting ready to leave the church and make his way out and everything else. And people are coming up, but way to go, preacher. Oh, man, preacher, you stuck that one, man. Oh, you nailed it. Woo, that was such a thank you, preacher. All right, you rock. And he's kind of reveling in the glory of all that. And they get in the car, and his wife gets in the car, and there's pretty much silence. And they're driving home in silence. And finally, the preacher, her husband, really can't stand it much longer. And he says, honey, he says, how many, how many really good preachers do you think there are in the world? And she says, dear, one less than you think there are. <laughs> And Barbara and I still do, we do. It was not long ago, in fact, when I, you know, I'll see her at home and I'll say, honey, how many great preachers do you think there are? <laughs> and now, you know, she'll modify it to things like, you really want me to answer that? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. So the young ruler comes and he kneels and he begins, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, Jesus says, good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Again, let me paraphrase this to try and give the gist of why Jesus answers that way. You, a ruler, and all that that means, are bowing before me and using a title of me, good teacher, there's none good except God alone, that belongs rightly only to God which tells me that you are apparently acknowledging me as God, which is awesome because you're right. It is God who's going to answer you. And by your address to me, acknowledging me as God, if you're serious about calling me good teacher, what you're telling me is you are ready to receive the answer that I give you, the one from the good one, and you're ready to obey the answer that I'm about to give you concerning your ever-important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I don't know if at this point in time the rich young ruler is swallowing rather hard, feeling like he's just been set up for something, but Jesus proceeds well, what must you do to inherit it? Uh, well, you know the commandments. And of course he did. He was a good Jew. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And by the way, just know too that this also, like the preceding, why do you call me good? This also is a holy setup. If you anticipate and this, this goes for any subject matter that you can think of, especially controversial ones, though. That if you're trying to, uh, um, you know, uh, provoke conversation with somebody and you are anticipating some kind of resistance, begin on common ground and get the person kind of like nodding. You know, you say, well, you know what I'm talking about, right? And they're like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And then pff, drop the mic. Okay, and lay it on them, right? Get them in that kind of agreeable fashion. Uh, let me illustrate this real quickly. Um, many years ago, I was out and about the College of uh, DuPage County, suburban Chicago, 
And um, I don't know, it was just kind of fun engaging um, those who were quite taken with their intelligence and all. And so I go to the cafeteria and I spy a young lady who looked to be uh, reading and studying. And I thought, well, that's good. Nothing like being obnoxious and, you know, taking advantage of somebody's study time. And so I sat down and I just started to engage her. And she was friendly enough to give me entertainment of, of having conversation with me. And uh, I started asking her, you know, certain things and started to just kind of bounce on certain things about spirituality and, you know, do you ever think about God and that concept and everything else? And she was quite open. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, she says, I'm an atheist and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, uh uh-huh, I see. And then she starts volunteering what she is studying at the school. And and it happened to be, if I remember, it was something in the allied health sciences. And I said, wow, I said, that's really cool. I said, because my first degree was in medical technology. So I, too, studied in allied health and and all of that. And she said, yeah, well, see, so I've got this, I've got a very scientific mind was what I went. Boom, I've got her. I didn't say that. I just went, so now. Get on common ground. Oh, you too. I know, right? Okay. Yeah. So being that scientific mind, I said, don't, we, we just pride ourselves, right, on, on objectivity and of taking raw data and evidence and taking that raw data and evidence and drawing consistent conclusions with what the data shows, with what the evidence shows, and coming out here and making our conclusions based on that. I mean, that is the scientific process, right? And, of course, she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get them on common ground. Get them agreeable. Yeah, 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 that's it. You understand me. And I said, so, what evidence led you to conclude that there is no God. Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's just, well, it's, it's not logical. It's just a, you know, it's just, you just, I don't know. I said, well, that doesn't sound very scientific, does it? So, I mean, it's an important question. What evidence led you to such a conclusion, considering the gravity of the question? I mean, your eternity rides on that. Get them in an agreeable place, set them up, and boom, then drop the bomb. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with the rich young ruler. The man is all about his own outward goodness, his merit, his worthiness. And he doesn't disappoint with his answer. Remember, Jesus says, so, you know, how have you done with the commandments? Thou shalt not. And Jesus lists off only five. And he says in verse 20, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Now, instead of Jesus going, (laughs) oh, that's good. That's really rich. He just says, hmm. Now, why does Jesus only touch on five of the Ten Commandments? Well, the ruler, first of all, knew all Ten Commandments, so that wasn't that wasn't at play. It really wasn't important. Jesus was just trying to get him on from this on this frame of mind of you know trying to find out in his mind so that he can say it for himself why 
you know, he believes that he has 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 all this, this merit and this worth and everything else. And turns out it's because he's been such a, a rigid adherent, implying a perfect adherent to the law from since he was a child. His righteousness was all about meticulous adherent and outward conformity to all of God's laws. So it wasn't important that Jesus listed all ten. It could have been five, could have been seven, it could have been all ten. But Jesus cited the ones that he did, and the ruler was confident that he had fulfilled the law of God from childhood to date, which is why he had an eagerness, I believe, to ask Jesus the question, to hear how Jesus would answer him in such an affirming way. So there's no reason for Jesus to enumerate each of the ten. Let's remember, too, again, though, too, that Jesus knows where this is going. We can't forget that in the bosom of man's soul, meaning all, everybody's, in the bosom, in our hearts, in our very souls that God created us is the Imago Dei. And part of that is having a sense a sense of justice. We have, everybody has a sense of justice and goodness and charity and righteousness. The problem is being tainted by sin. We define them personally, which is why very few people, regardless of their, their faith system or no faith system at all, few people ever really think that they will suffer a fate that is less than pleasant when they die because their system or their sense of goodness and justice and all of that is well i'm you know i'm a good father gosh i'm a, i'm a, i'm a i'm a devoted mother i'm i'm i've sacrificed for my kids i sacrifice you know even volunteering at the library i mean i give them my time and that's as i you know i watch the neighbor's children when you know dad had to go to his doctor's appointment and and I loaned Joe my lawnmower, and I even put gas in the tank for him. You see? And the, the issue there is, is that our bar of heavenly goodness is set very low. And Jesus knows this, which is why in what are called the Beatitudes, Jesus lays out a different standard. He raises the bar. He lays out a standard of what is good and right that is so different from ours that he is compelled to spell it out for us to drive us to that place of honest evaluation because the stakes are so high. And what people call judgmental today is nothing more than trying to help one see the heavenly bar of righteousness rather than one's own. Well, I'm a good person. I love my family. I work hard for my family and volunteer at the school, all that stuff. And then Jesus comes along with the Beatitudes, Luke chapter 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, yeah, that's what I'm saying. What credit is that to you? What? For even sinners love those who love them. Huh? If you do good to those who do good to you, yeah, you got what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that 
to you. Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. And line by line, Jesus shreds our notion of goodness and lays out an entirely out of reach standard ending with this at the end of the pericope in Luke 6 verse 49. But the one who has heard the context being the standard of God, whether they like it or not, and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is talking to the young ruler. So how are you with God's bar of goodness? Well, teacher, I've, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And as I've suggested I do believe that there is more here to the ruler's question than rank arrogance. And I believe Mark hints at this with the next verse, 21. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And why do I say that that hints that there was more to this man's question than rank arrogance? Well, it's because from what we've seen just already in the Gospel of Mark, We know that Jesus had little patience for the uber-arrogant and self-righteous. The Pharisees were continually getting on Jesus' nerves because with few exceptions, there were rarely any truly looking for honest answers. Nicodemus was one shining exception. And maybe Gamaliel was another. The young ruler, you see, with all his human traits of ego and pride in tow, was nevertheless searching for something that compelled him to approach Jesus, asking what he did. And I believe Jesus could see this in him, which is why he bothered to take him through these lengths, to take him through these steps, to rather play pretty much of a game with him, like the young lady on campus that I talked to and the young ruler, we all need at times in our lives strategically placed holy slap wake-up calls. See if you remember this. 30, 40 years old, okay? Yeah, 40, right? That's the first thing that came to my mind. Boy, that's good advertising, right? Mark ten twenty one. I thought you all needed a good wake-up right now about this time in the message. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. What I find interesting in this exchange is that Jesus put to him an abbreviated list of the commandments in verse 19, which omits the very first one, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And anything that comes between us and the Lord is a God. It's an idol. So close and yet so far from the kingdom. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, do not misunderstand the intent of the passage here at this point. What a mistake it is for anyone to hear this passage and attempt to take what Jesus just said and to walk away with some misconstrued theology of wealth, making the scriptures say that money is the root of all evil, which is wrong on two counts. Scriptures don't say that. Oh, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. What does the scripture say? 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money. Not just money. The love of money is not the root, is a. It's one of many roots of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It took me about 30 seconds or less because I just wanted to think in my head. Could I think of some examples of, of you know, well-known people who you could legitimately say it was the allure of wealth and all that goes with that, stardom, fame, and everything, whose roots were entrenched in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the first one came to my mind was Whitney Houston. Raised in the church as a little girl, still claiming to be a Christ follower. And I can't say that she wasn't. Her life sure was in shambles and everything else as she became more and more famous and wealthy and died a tragic death at a very young age, relatively speaking. But it started out singing in the church choir. And there's Miley Cyrus. Hannah, what is it? Not Hannah Banana. What is it? Hannah Montana. There you go. But Siley Myris. What the heck? Raised in Tennessee. Okay. In a God-fearing family in the church, singing in the church. Considered herself a Christian even well up into her teen years. We see where that's gone. And then good old Elvis. Who? Yeah, Elvis, you know. Thank you. Thank you very much. And again, not to say that these people lost their salvation or whatever. That's not for me to figure out. But started out where the Lord would have them and then with fame and fortune, just everything kind of fell apart. You can throw Katy Perry in there as well. What was confusing to the Jews, among other things, who were listening here, as well as the young ruler, Earthly possessions, you see, in the Old Testament, and remember, we're, we're basically, we're, we're in the New Testament, but just barely getting going. Having wealth, having earthly possessions in the Old Testament was a sign, a legitimate sign of God's favor, of God's blessing upon them. That's why all the patriarchs, the big names of the Jewish faith throughout the centuries, they were all rich. And pretty well what we would call today filthy rich. 
And so we start to see both why the disciples were amazed at Jesus' statements about the rich as well as the rich rulers dismayed shock at Jesus' words about going and selling all that he had. It's hard enough to be told that you have to divest yourself of all that you have, but even more to realize that your wealth was not necessarily because you were in good stead with Jehovah. The cry of Asaph in Psalm 73 is him protesting that some of the richest, well-to-do individuals in his day were the most godless people there were. And they seemed to get only richer and fatter. So if you take those of society who were seemingly blessed by God, now according to Jesus, having to question their eternity, the question that they then ask Jesus flows quite logically and it's quite rational, verse 26. They were even more astonished, and they said to Jesus, Well, then, who can be saved? And what is the last thing Jesus says in the previous segment of Scripture leading up to this in verse 15? It's what I read at the outset. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it at all. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we come with, with, with a blind, an absolute blind naivete. Remember, God does not mind the honest doubter, the honest inquisitor. He minds the dishonest doubter and the dishonest inquisitor. The one who's going to analyze, not for the sake of trying to get information to determine rationally or scientifically if this makes sense. He minds the one who keeps mining the fields of God, trying to look for loopholes to confirm what he wants to believe is true and right, even though it's not. To receive the kingdom of God like a child? Then who can be saved? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, With people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Unless you receive the kingdom of heaven as a child, you cannot have eternal life. Many of us in here have children. If we don't have children, we have nieces and nephews perhaps or cousins that we've talked to about some fantastic things perhaps when they were little children. But I want to use an illustration that I was thinking about from our own children. And I was thinking about the very first time that our first child, Billy, lost his first tooth. Heavy theological discussion that night about the tooth fairy. Billy, you take this tooth and you put it under your pillow. And the tooth fairy will come and take that tooth and we'll replace it with cold, hard cash. Right? Now, here's Billy's reply. I beg your pardon? A tooth fairy? Tooth? Cold, hard cash? Show me the scientific evidence. No. No. The eyes get bigger as you're talking to them, and it's like, Give me my tooth. It's going under my pillow. And all night long they're waking up and they're feeling around. And in the morning, 
Remember the time somehow he thought the thing got loose because the money wasn't there? The wretched tooth fairy forgot? <clears throat> it happens. Sorry, I'm just purging myself of guilt and everything else. The point is, I didn't have to sit there and coax him and convince him with his little innocent mind about the tooth fairy and that if he puts a tooth there, he's going to get money in the morning. Now, don't take that illustration too far concerning the kingdom of God and receiving it like a child. Again, God does not mind us analyzing. He does mind us analyzing as an excuse to sidestep him. And no matter how old we get, no matter how wise we are, no matter how much information and knowledge anybody gets, you do understand, I know you do, that there are people out there who are called scholars of the Bible, who are anything but Christians. But they are scholars of the Bible. They have knowledge. And a lot of it is good knowledge. Not all of it, but a lot of it's good knowledge. Knowledge will take you to the kingdom of God up to here, but then no matter who you are and how much you know, there is that childlike faith that just says, Tooth <laughs> under the pillow, money in the morning, <laughs> Jesus, my sins, cleansed, heaven, it's there. I'm doing it. That's what it means. That until and unless you enter the kingdom of heaven like a child, you will not have eternal life. Let me have you stand and let me have Don Cole come on up. Interesting that God gave us the mechanics, you know, for memorizing things. I have a fairly complicated logging machinery in the woods, and sometimes, even in nighttime operations, you'd have to take those things apart. You know, there'd be solenoids with wires all over everywhere, and it was such a problematic thing to take it apart and remember where everything went. So I just put these little acronyms together. So to you, my grandmother could quibble over pennies doesn't mean anything. But if you had an, if every one of those had a letter in it that meant something, I could just rip those wires right off and throw them to the side and put the thing back together by memory. But it doesn't do me any good anymore. <laughs> that machine's long gone, and whether my grandmother could quibble over pennies or not doesn't have any help to me. But when I was teaching a Sunday school class and, and uh, when Janet was up with all the kids, I was thinking to myself, what was the memory verse when I was teaching that month? And it was Psalm 47, verses 7 and 8. It said, God is the king over all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God rules over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That will have merit, you know, all my life long because we get it written down in here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us even... Uh, the physical ability to remember things. And Lord, for as much as we get your word down in our hearts, I pray that it would uh, bear fruit and bring forth glory to you. So dismiss us with your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.